story is told of a uh, preacher who became frustrated that a large part of his congregation was going water skiing on Sunday rather than going to church. So he told his wife, this Sunday I'm going to preach on the evils of water skiing on Sundays. She said, what? That's a silly thing to preach about. He said, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's a problem that needs to be addressed. So next Sunday as they're driving to church, the wife asked the preacher on the way there what he's going to preach about, somewhat warily asking him once again. He said, I told you, I'm going to preach about the evils of water skiing on Sundays. She said, that is idiotic. First of all, it's a dumb sermon topic. Second, the people who need to hear it won't be in church. (laughs) Think about it. Why don't you preach on something interesting to people like sex or something like that? He goes, no, the Lord wants me to preach about the evils of water skiing on Sundays and that's what I'm going to do. She said, then I'm not getting out of the car and sit through a stupid sermon like that. I don't care what you tell people, tell them I'm sick, whatever you want, but I am not getting out of the car. So he leaves and he starts walking to the study and he starts to realize, you know what, she's probably right. The people need to hear it aren't there anyway, so that's kind of a stupid subject. And so he changed his subject. He preaches perhaps one of his finest sermons ever on sex in modern society and what the Bible has to say about it. So afterwards, one of the members of the congregation, this lady's walking out through the parking lot and sees pastor's wife sit in the car, goes over and says, I'm sorry to hear you're not feeling well today, but your sermon, your husband preached perhaps the best sermon he's ever preached since he's been at our church. And she said, what? I don't know what makes him think he's such an expert. (laughs) Said he's only done it twice. And both times he got dizzy, sick, and threw up. So, and that lady had something fun to talk about at brunch. So anyway, while we're on the subject of um, seasickness, Acts chapter 27 is the tale of one of the most famous storms at sea and subsequent shipwrecks in history. And that is of the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome. It's one of the best told, most detailed shipwreck accounts in ancient history and certainly I'd have to believe the most profitable to the hearer and the reason I say that is this, that we know all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do every good work. The bottom line is this, this is a story of a shipwreck and a storm at sea that have changed people's lives because God promises, as it's His Word, that it will not go out empty and it will not come back without some fruit. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. You know, I love the fact that God's promise is very clear that you will never waste your time anytime you spend any time at all in the Word of God. It is a guarantee, a conditional promise. If you read it, I will bless you. The Word of God blesses the hearts of those who read it. And so we've got to be careful to realize, you know what, there is nothing like it. Every word, man shall live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And here in Acts chapter 27, from this account that we're about to read, we learn much about the leadership quality of the Apostle Paul. In such times of crisis, true character is revealed. It is times of challenge and crisis that reveal the qualities of true leaders. Winston Churchill had been in and out of the British government for many years before becoming Prime Minister and he assumed that position at one of the lowest points of the Second World War. He took office, we know historically, on May 10, 1940, the same day the Germans invaded France and the Low Countries. 
his indomitable courage as he led his nation through the crisis days that lay ahead has caused many to regard him as the greatest leader of the 20th century. Acts 27 opens with Paul as a prisoner. He's not in charge of anyone or anything. And yet as this account is unveiled to us, we find that his true leadership qualities begin to emerge in a time of crisis. That being said, as we look at what some of these qualities are through this account, turn with me to Acts chapter 27 if you're not there already. And we're going to concentrate on the, 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 uh, the concept that crisis reveals true character. Crisis reveals character. Acts chapter 27, we'll start with verse 1. We read these words, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Andromedian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia, Cilicia I'm sorry, and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived at Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Salmoni. And, having and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lesia. In this particular account, among other emphases that will be seen uh, through this unique chapter, it's helpful to note that the issue of Paul's leadership comes out and emerges before us as we look at the leadership qualities that come through a time of crisis. And the story of his emerging leadership during a storm-filled journey uh, across the Mediterranean Sea is, is broken down into um, four points. The first one will be the starting point, which we we just read. We'll see a stay that they have because of the weather, uh, the storm, and then finally a shipwreck. And through this, we'll find many metaphors that God uses to teach us some spiritual truths as they relate to each and every one of our lives. So we see the start of the journey. He begins by telling us that, if you remember, the Apostle Paul having appealed to Caesar, Paul remains in custody until a time that was uh, deemed fitting to send him to Italy. That time has just arrived, and the start or the beginning of this journey to Rome takes place before us. We're told that, as you see, where, where uh, Luke introduces the, uh, the personal pronoun, uh, first personal pl plural pronoun of we, he indicates that Luke is now with him. Luke, as you know, is Paul's friend. He's the great physician, the physician Luke that wrote the gospel, inspired to write the gospel of Luke, and also the account that we're reading through the book of Acts. And for the two years that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, Luke probably lived close by, you know, continued to do whatever he needed to do in his ministry, and also probably worked as a physician in that area. And now it says that we, meaning that Luke has now joined him on this trip. He was now by Paul's side to join him on the journey to Rome. And they were accompanied, we're told, by a uh, gentleman by the name of Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now some of us, as we've been going through this series, we'll notice, and the thing I love about book studies is that obviously they build upon, you know, things that we've already known. We can see that in context. It's real important to study the Bible in the historical context in which it's written. You know, pull a verse out somewhere. You may not understand the true significance or the interpretation may even be an error if you're pulling it out of context. And so as we've gone through the book of Acts, we see a story unfolding in which God helps us to see the flow of what is going on. You see this great uh, dramatic crescendo, so to speak, where, where the Lord has promised that Paul would appear in the city of Rome before the emperor. But look at everything that's happening up to this point to get him there. And it says, 
this, this is a great act of God, this great crescendo that's building to one day he'll finally give a defense for the hope that is within him before the emperor himself in the city of Rome. It's a great story that is, un, that is unfolding before us and it's just not a story as in a fable, it's a historical account, real people in real time doing real things, being used by a real God to accomplish his purposes. We see that Luke has been joined by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now if you recall from our previous studies that Aristarchus along with Gaius were two men who were dragged before the mob in the city of Ephesus where there was 20 some thousand people who were screaming great as Artemis of the Ephesians. It was a genuine riot that had broken out and they had dragged Aristarchus and they had dragged uh, Gaius into this arena before him and here's Aristarchus and I'm going to tell you something we learn a lot about the true character of people during times of crisis because after being dragged in the midst of 25,000 angry, uh, an angry mob that is screaming and chanting for two hours it had to make some kind of impression on this fella. And yet at the same time, we see that he is a man who is willing to lay his life on the line for his convictions. He is not ashamed to be identified with the gospel of Jesus Christ, neither is Luke, nor is he ashamed to be identified with this prisoner of Rome, the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. God has done a great work, not only in Saul's life, where he became the Apostle Paul, but also in the life of Aristarchus, a Gentile, and Gaius, and everybody else that we see in these accounts. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. It ain't the same no more. And that's just the truth. And Aristarchus demonstrates it. And if you remember, when Paul went into Jerusalem and gave a defense of what God was doing in the Gentile world, Aristarchus was there and also was Trophimus was with him. Both Gentile men who had come to faith in the living Christ. Their lives were changed. They were born again. They were new creatures. They were children of God to those who believe in His name. And Paul had them alongside to say, Hey, exhibit A of what God can do in the heart of a Gentile who trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Exhibit B of what God can do in the heart of a Gentile who trusts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection. Oh, and also, don't forget me, exhibit C, what God can do in the life of a Jew who upheld the law and lived according to the law. But you know what? Counts it all rubbish now for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. Man, that's good stuff. These men, Luke and Aristarchus, as I was studying, I was reminded of the proverb in 17.17 that says, There is a friend that loves at all times and a brother born for adversity. These brothers in Christ were there by his side in the day of this adversity to uphold him, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, but to hold one another up. And they were not ashamed to be counted as not only a co-worker with the Apostle Paul, but also, we believe, historically, that they identified themselves as Paul's slaves so that they would be permitted to join him. We have to go. The Romans understood what it meant to have slaves. And they said, we're his slaves. We have to go with him. Where our master tells us to go, we got to go. They had the perfect doubt to say, hey, have a nice trip. Send us a card. Hope it all works out. <laughs> you know, but then we've been around long enough to know wherever you are, man, there's trouble everywhere you go. It's like we talked about. You know what? When you're preaching the word of God and you're doing God's will, guess what? You're going to be in the midst of it. You're stirring it up everywhere you go. You're just going to be in trouble. But you know what? They were willing to come alongside. I was in spring training this past week for a few days, and, and I recognized that as I walked through the locker room. You know, there's nothing better than to have brothers in Christ who will come up to you and give you a big hug and glad to see you there while all the other guys are looking at you trying to figure out who you are and what you're all about. Man, it gives you credibility. You know, to be able to stand alongside another person and say, you know what, this guy's okay. 
He's proven or demonstrated you know, his heart, his character. We know what he's all about. It's okay. You can trust him. That's a huge statement. We all need Luke's. We all need Aristarchus type people in our life. But let me tell you something. You and I should be that same person to those around us. See, we can't control who God brings in our life, but we can take responsibility for who we are in the lives of other people. You know, be an Aristarchus. Be a Luke. Be a person that lifts your brother up in times of adversity. The Bible also identifies us for us a, a gentleman by the name of Julius. We're told that he's of the Italian cohort. A cohort in the, in the Roman army was 300 to 600 soldiers. He specifically was a centurion, meaning that he was responsible for 100 soldiers. And as is so often the case throughout the New Testament, anytime that you read of a person who is a centurion, there's one thing that will stand out that has stood out when I read, and that these men were men of integrity. They're men of integrity. They're men of character. It doesn't mean they were godly men so much as they were men who uphold, upheld godly principles, maybe without even knowing what they were. But they were men of integrity. They were men of high moral character. This man, Julius, as we'll see, demonstrated he was a compassionate, considerate, and kind individual. And it's noted in verse 3. Notice what it says. The next day we put in at Sidon, Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Somehow or another, Paul had already proven himself to be trustworthy in his relationship with Julius and maybe even the reputation that had preceded him taking over as Paul's watchdog. And the reason I say that is this. Remember, everywhere that Paul went, he created a stir. There was a riot every place he went. That was the accusation that, he made, that they made against him. And in, a lot of, and in a lot of cases, that was true. This man stirs up the people. He causes a riot everywhere that he goes, man. And so for Julius to allow Paul to go to his friends in Sidon meant that he trusted that he wouldn't go into town and start a riot and cause a commotion. Because if he did, Julius would have been responsible. He also knew that the Jews hated him. And if you remember, many times they had a conspiracy to kill him. There's a plot to kill him. And he knew that if Paul went into his friends and those Jews that were there that were plotting to kill him assassinated him, then Julius would have to give up his own life as a centurion or a Roman soldier who lost one of his prisoners. And so there was a lot of risk downside for Julius to let Paul go to his friends so his friends could take care of him. But apparently, and it's obvious from his actions, that Paul deemed himself trustworthy in the sight of Julius. And I like that. And it also has something to do or teaches us something about uh, leadership. Think about this for a second. People will trust one whom they believe has others' best interest at heart and not merely their own. People will trust a leader who they know has their best interests at heart and not merely their own. Paul cared about people like Julius. And you know what? And Julius knew it. In a leadership position, people will trust you if they know that you care about them. And it's just not about your own agenda. Because selfish people aren't worth trusting. Because they'll sell you out in a second. They'll throw you under the bus. Whatever you want to call it. They'll sell you down the river. They'll sell you short. Whatever it is, selfish people care about only themselves. But those who demonstrate a concern and care for others are worth trusting and worth following. 
We're told that they made a transfer in ships at this point at the beginning of the journey. They got on an Alexandrian ship and the reason for it was that this ship would go directly to Rome. It was a ship from Alexandria, Egypt. It was, it was a ship that contained uh, precious grain cargo and we'll see what role that plays in this ongoing uh, saga that we'll see before us. So Julius took all of his prisoners, including Paul, and transferred them onto this grain barge, so to speak, so that they would make a direct, uh, a direct uh, shot to the city of Rome and not have to stop at many ports along the way. So this is the start of this particular journey and as we see it, there's going to be kind of a change that takes place and they're going to get stuck as they're traveling and there's a stay at, we see them uh, told to us here in verses 9 through 12. Read along with me. It says that, um, and when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. He said to the men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our very lives. It says, but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to point out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So the ship was delayed a considerable time in Fairhavens, and it was waiting for a change in the winds. And to continue the journey now was, as Paul said, it's very dangerous that we would go and leave this safety of this harbor at this point. Notice that Luke says that even the fast or the Day of Atonement was already over. Now what this means, it gives us information for ancient sailing vessels, travel was problematic and dangerous from mid-September until mid-November. All the sailing in open sea ceased from mid-November until February because of the danger of the seas and the storms that came up. It would be, in our case, understanding that you know you don't go, uh, for example, there's hurricane season in the Caribbean. You know, it's, it, it's you know, not a real good time to take a cruise or whatever, there are better times to go when the weather's better. See, they understood this. As seasoned sailors, they knew that there was a window of opportunity in which to sail, and if that window slammed shut, then wisdom would prevail, and I'm sorry, we, you know, we can't go. And so, what Paul began to do, he was saying that, you know, it's very dangerous. He began to admonish them, meaning that he tried every way that he could to talk them out of setting sail, because if anybody knew about shipwrecks, it was the Apostle Paul. And the reason is, he had already been on three. 2 Corinthians 11, read it sometime where he gives an account of everything that he went through for the cause of Christ. He had been on three ships that wrecked. And he's thinking, been there, done it. Don't want to do it again. It reminds me of the story of a, a bunch of young guys who were sitting around in a room with an older gentleman and they were all just amazed at the wisdom of this gentleman. They said, sir, you know, how in the world have you developed such sound judgment in your life? Without hesitation, he looked at him and said, oh, sound judgment comes from experience. And I said, well, how in the world do you get that kind of experience? And he thought for a second, he said, you know what? From bad judgment. <laughs> kind of the way it works, you know? You want good judgment? Experience. Experience, bad judgment. That's kind of how the package works. And what Paul was saying, listen, the reason I got such good judgment today is I've been on three ships at wrecked. All right? And I saw a little pattern developing here and I see the same one again today. So would you please listen to me? Would you please trust me? Well, the problem is, is that, you know, Paul possessed the good judgment, but regrettably, uh, the word but indicates, eh, nice argument, but I don't think so. And they were persuaded by the captain of the ship, the pilot of the ship, captain of the ship, persuaded him that, you know what, it'll be okay, you can trust me. Now, it's, it's, it's understandable yet regrettable, the centurion was persuaded to do what he did because what's interesting is as, because the ship belonged to the imperial grain fleet, the centurion 
and not the pilot of the ship, was the highest ranking officer aboard. So the centurion had final say, regardless of what the pilot of the ship said, you know, because that was his call, and finally he's the one that had to make it. Have you, any of you read the book? Um, I know, I, I know it'll probably be different. I said, have you ever seen the movie? It's, you know, it's kind of a shortcut to read a book. But, uh, and never close to the same, by the way. But have you ever read the book, The Perfect Storm? All right? Seen the movie, Perfect Storm? Yeah, video, huh? <laughs> no, no one had to see when I was out. There's a handful of people. But the perfect storm was, a, was a, based on you know, historical facts of a fishing ship or fleet of ships off the coast of Massachusetts that went out and got caught in what, what turned out to be the storm of the century. And as they were proceeding to go out, there were warnings or signs along the way that, man, this is going to be a bad one. You know what? You need to come on back. Well, there were a lot of things that were involved that, as far as the story were concerned. Some of them, and most of them, were financially driven. The decisions that they made were based on finances more than sound judgment. And what would happen is it was a lean fishing season. They went out. They got to a place where they found a fishing hole. They started taking a large haul. It was great fishing that was there. They're loading up their boat. But in the meantime, they're getting warnings. You better come in. There's a storm like something we've never seen before. And yet they were wrestling with, well, but if we leave now, we're not going to make you know, the kind of money that we need to make. The season's going to be a bust. There's all this pressure on them. Like Danny was talking about the economic pressures, you know, that sometimes affect sound judgment. And they were torn back and forth. And in the meantime, the more fish that they caught, the heavier the boat became because they were loading up in the boat. And so they were, comp- they were compounding the problem that they were in the midst of at that point. And make a long story short, the boat... Oh, I think I mentioned it. You know, if you didn't see it, the boat sinks, they all die. So, anyway... <laughs> That, that also save you a lot of little time. But, uh, so the boat sinks, they all die. And uh, in, in this particular case, um, what Paul's trying to say is, look, you know what? The boat's going to sink, and there's a good chance that we're all going to die. But remember, the economics of all this is, hey, we got a whole load of grain that we need to get to Rome, and it's all based on us delivering our product before we get paid. And if we don't get there now, we're going to get shut down for a number of months, and we're not going to be able to get there. And plus, sitting somewhere, we're going to have to feed our crew. We're going to have to all the expenses that are involved that we haven't really planned on. And so it was a decision that was made for comfort uh, and one that the sailors and also Julius would soon learn to regret. Bringing up another leadership quality that stood out as I was thinking about it and that's this. A solid track record is an important quality of godly leadership. Think about it. A solid track record is an important quality of godly leadership. Paul had a solid track record. He was a man that said, listen, I've been through three shipwrecks, and every time that I was in a shipwreck, it was for the same reasons. We are sitting in the same place again, and I'm arguing with you just as I argued with the people before me, and you have a choice to listen or not, but they chose not to. You know, that track record of godly leadership. Look at a person's life and look at their track record. And as when they give you counsel that lines up with the word of God, man, you know what? You better stop and give heed to what they have to say because they're protecting you from the dangers that they see that maybe you've never experienced in your life. I go, you know, when I speak all the time and do chapels and things like this, you know, I'll always give illustrations or stories of personal accounts of people that I know, people we've been involved with, without sharing their name, without disclosing their identity. But the principle is still the same. And I always end every time that I meet with guys by saying the same thing and that's this you don't want to become an illustration for one of my future Bible studies you just don't not in a negative way I'd rather lift you up in a positive way and say hey you know what here was a guy at a crossroads in life and he chose to do what was right before God and then look what happened commit your ways to the Lord he gives you the desires of your heart here's a guy at the same crossroad that you're at and here's the decision that he made he's doing 40 years in Juliet, Indiana federal penitentiary where do you want to end up? trust God believe in Him trust His Word and you know what? 
and you'll be successful and you'll be prosperous before the eyes of God. But, you know, it's our choice because God gives gives us the freedom to choose. A position of influence is one where a demonstrable life of living out what we believe based on the Word of God is seen clearly we would be wise to heed such counsel in our life. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. So, here's where they are. They're stuck there. They're trying to figure out what to do and they decide we're going to go for it. We're going to set sail. And that's the storm that we see revealed to us in verses 13 through 26. We're told that they set sail and when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along creek close inshore. So what they were doing, they were trying to use the islands as their shelter against the storm and against the wind. The closer that they stayed, the less they'd be out in open seas and have a little bit of shelter. So we're creeping along trying to do it. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind. A violent wind, Eurakalo. Eurakalo is the word that they use and Eurakalo is from Euroclodian who was a god who sat upon the mountaintop who watched them take sail. This is what they believe. This is what the combination of the Greek and Latin word is. It was from the god Eurycleton, which was they waited until the ship got out and then all hell broke loose basically is what they're saying against the ship. This violent wind that they had a name for is kind of like in our area where we call the Santa Ana winds or whatever but this is one that was out at sea and it was a violent wind and man they were in trouble once that thing hit. And when the ship was caught in it, we could not face the wind. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. I like Luke identifies himself with those who are in charge of running the ship because you know what? Whether he likes it or not, he's part of what's going to happen. We were on the ship. This is what happened. And now, man, we are in for a ride of our life. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor so that they would themselves be driven along. The next day as we were being violently storm tossed they began jettisoning the cargo. The third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Man it was getting to be a little bit hairy and he said we were tossed to and from. Man we are jumping things overboard to loosen up the weight of the ship so it wouldn't be dragged to the bottom. And I like Luke. Now Luke is an interesting guy to me because he, he identifies this storm is no small storm. No small storm. This is no small storm. Remember, this is the same guy that said that in Ephesus that the silversmiths were making no small business, making the little you know trinkets, the, the little shrines of Artemis. They were making no small business. We know they were making a fortune. And it says also it created no small disturbance. Which was 25,000 people screaming for two hours, great as Artemis, king of the, you know, of the Ephesians. It's like, no small business, no small you know, uh, um, disturbance, and now this is no small storm. I mean, this guy, did anything ever get him excited? I can see him going, yep, taking his teeth. This is no small storm, if I do say so myself. No small storm. Man, this is a major storm. I don't know what this guy, has, has anyone here ever been seasick? Can I hear, see his hand? Can I see people going like this? Oh, don't bring it back because I made flash right now. You know? If you've ever been seasick, then you can identify with what's going on here. A quick story, personal story. We were in Cabo San Lucas. My wife, my business partner, Dave, and his wife, Frankie. And we were in Cabo San Lucas. And I grew up on the East Coast watching the American sportsmen. 
Kirk Gowdy. Everybody sing along. So, um, so I'm watching this, and every time I see it, you know, it's always in the middle of winter. It's freezing out. It's snowing out. You know, you're you're, you're scraping ice off the windows to see if it's still snowing outside, and you're watching people in Cabo San Lucas, uh, you know, marlin fishing or whatever they're doing, deep sea fishing, and you're going, "Wow, that looks like fun." My whole life, that looks like fun. So, Linda, I say, "Boy, wouldn't that be great?" And she goes, "Why don't you do it?" I said, why don't you come with me? I know. Why don't we all go together? So we get up early. The hotel makes a little box lunch that you take. A little chicken, a little stuff like that. Take a little, you know, nice little box lunch. You get on the boat and you head on out. And there we are, American sportsmen. <laughs> living out the dream, baby. Just living it out. Living out the dream. We're on the boat. And I don't remember this being the case on the American sportsman. <laughs> There was, there's this little queasy feeling starting to happen, starting to take place. So we sit up on the bow of the boat, you know, sit up on the bow, it's a little more sturdy there, and you look out at the horizon. <laughs> Just like that. Well, and I, t- I turn to the side, and I see my wife, Linda's getting a little white, not looking too good, a little peaked, as they say, and I see her kind of like crawl over to the side of the boat. Now, being the compassionate guy that I am, I want to go and help her. But I'm thinking, you know what? Every man for himself. We're on a boat. I can't move, man. I mean, I can't move. If I move, it's all over. So, so my wife, being the dainty woman that she is, she crawls over with her towel. And she puts the towel up like this so that anybody else on the boat doesn't see what's about to take place. But little does she realize they're sitting way in the back of the boat and the towel only looks about this big and there's this much room under the towel. So she starts chumming for fish. And she's not doing good. Now, you know if you've ever been there, one person starts, all of a sudden, all of a sudden Frankie's feeling a little bit tippet, you know. And the next thing I know, they're crawling, they're going downstairs to the only bathroom on the boat. All right, now, Dave is more compassionate than I am because he goes down to help. And I say, let me know if I can do anything for you. But if I move from here, I am a dead man. I'll be, there'll be three of us. You'll be like, going, you okay? You okay? So the guy who's with us is a guy who was at our hotel who they kind of put people together in a group. And he said, on the way to fishing, he says, I don't know if I should get on the boat because I got kind of airsick on my way here. And I'm like, you were on our flight, man. It was a perfect flight. There was no turbulence. The plane, all it did was take off, go straight, come down. I mean, what part was tough for you? He said, like, I don't know. But I, he gets on the boat. All this is going on. There are people sick everywhere. He's sitting up in the chair fishing, and he goes like this to me. You think they're going to eat their lunch? I don't think so, man. And I'm stacking boxes of chicken lunch right here next to him. And the guy's eating greasy chicken, man, just fishing away, going, this is great. Well, then I don't know, but when they see these little birds and they see a sighting of fish, every boat in Cabo San Lucas goes to the same place, right? And they're hooking fish, throwing stuff out, and the boat's going like this. And every boat in the whole neighborhood's right there on top of each other, and the boat's just going like this. And I'm just thinking, my wife would have sold me into slavery to that fisherman if he would have turned that boat around and went back. I mean, he would, I mean, anything. Take my husband, he'll work for you for seven years. Just like it's biblical, he'll work for you for seven years. And, 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 and this is our day. Half a day, this is four hours, half day trip. And we praise God every minute of the half day trip versus do you want to go on the full day trip? It's only 30% more. No, half day's enough. So we come back in and then we're unloading the boat and the captain goes, something, he says something in Spanish and I'm grateful that I don't understand Spanish because he didn't look happy. But he said, basically, you got to get them off the boat. 
because I can only be here so long to unload. Get them off the boat. And, and they're both down at the bottom just like this. I ain't moving. I'm not moving. Well, so flip them up and we're carrying them off the boat. All, all, all to say this. Deep sea fishing is overrated. That's all I'm going to say. Ever been there? Now, here's the problem though. If you're on this boat... We're going to see some things that are going on in this boat that you can't believe that are taking place. 276 crewmen and passengers are thinking, man, it is getting worse. For 14 days. They saw no sun by day, no stars by night. 14 days. We had four hours and it was a beautiful sunny day. We could see shore. I almost swam a couple times. 14 days. You've got to believe by the end of 14 days, they're thinking there is no hope. There is no hope. And yet here is the promise of God. Two years earlier, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, had appeared to the Apostle Paul and made an unconditional promise that he would bear witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the emperor in Rome. Paul knew that he was not going to die. He knew it. And yet, God did not promise smooth sailing along the way. The metaphor of the Christian life is this. As we serve Christ, there will be storms. There will be hardships. There will be high seas. There will be breakdowns. But there will also be peace and assurance and fruitfulness and the sustaining presence of God Himself. Think about it. In the story that's told in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus came walking across the water to His disciples. And the reason they were in the middle of the storm is because Jesus told them to get in the boat and go out onto the lake. They were in the middle of the storm because they were obedient to the command of God. And yet His presence was there as well. They were obedient. We live in a soft Christian society. We want to follow Christ as long as it's convenient or there's some benefit that we get out of it. The moment things get tough, the rage, there's problems in sea, the ship starts going down, we say, I must be on the wrong road because I can't believe that, God, you want me to go through this because you want me to be happy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God wants us to be obedient. God wants to follow Him. He will not follow us. One God, He's it, we're not, follow Him. F.B. Meyer wrote, If I'm told that I'm to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt and bump and bruise along the way will remind me that I am on the right path. Paul was to go to Rome. And every bump and bruise along the way reminded him that he's on the right path because Jesus said, In this world you shall have trials and tribulations, but don't sweat it, for I have overcome the world. Let me give you, in our wrap-up time together, four principles or four anchors to hang on to in the midst of our own personal storms as has been mentioned when we're crying out in the middle of the storm you know what as, as Peter did Lord save me save me I'm going down I need you to throw me a rope 
the metaphor of the Christian life. Huge waves were assaulting the ship, but Paul's soul was as calm as a windless pond, and the reason for it was simple. He was anchored in a way the rest knew nothing about. Every Christian, every person who had acknowledged their sin and repented, turned from it and trusted in Jesus Christ's death upon the cross and the power of His resurrection, every person who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved and become children of God to those who believe in His name. Every person at that moment in time that has done that has access to these four anchors that we can grab onto in those times of trouble in our own life. And it's found and summarized in verses 23 through 25. And I want you to read this where it says, For this night, he said, Don't sweat it. For this night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me, saying, Don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Four anchors to grab onto in those storms of life. Anchor number one, the anchor of God's presence. The anchor of God's presence. He says, Last night an angel of 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 God, the angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me. On the deck of a sinking ship and a raging storm, Paul was anchored in God's presence, an ongoing reality in every area of his life. And it wasn't the first time that the apostle experienced this assurance. If you remember in Corinth, in our study, Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision and said, Don't be afraid, keep on speaking, keep on preaching the word, don't be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you. I have many people in this city. Later on, the same thing in Caesarea the risen Savior Himself stood with the Apostle in the flesh. And we read the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. If you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify me to testify about me in Rome. The writer of Hebrews said that God has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? The very presence of God. Take courage, the anchor of God. And yet I've already mentioned... God is present with us, we can take God's presence for granted. And what I mean by that, we can assume that because Jesus said He would be with us always, that He'll follow us wherever we go. And that is not what the Bible teaches. We're to pick up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following Him. He leads in our life. We don't say, this is the direction we want to go, this is the direction we're going to go, and hey, by the way, follow me. So you can be the assurance of your presence in my life. And he says, no, if you follow me, I will always be with you for you're following me. And my presence will be made known to you. You will feel my presence when everybody else around you is falling apart. You will take courage knowing that I am with you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do not be timid. Do not be fearful. But trust in me in every area. I am with you. Can you imagine Paul's on the ship, man, that's going down and he's thinking, you know what, I know I'm not going to die, but Lord, what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime? What's my role here? What's my position here? There's a purpose. God's presence. Following Jesus will lead you into experiences you'd never dreamed of. Somebody asked me the other day, well, what do you do at spring training? I said, well, i got some things that I know I'm going to do and other things I don't have a clue until I get there. I'll let you know how it all turns out. You walk in the locker room and the next thing you know, somebody comes up to you and they start to share something with you that if you weren't there, they never would have been able to do it. And yet at the same time, when I go, I go, Lord, you know what? This seems like a waste of time to me because I'm a very time, uh, you know, time management. It's really important to me using the time wisely because you only have so much of it. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, what am I doing? Sitting around waiting God for you to do something is kind of like, you know, it's a little frustrating. You know me, but at the same time, that's what I'm here. And yet at the same time, that's what happens. You walk out of the locker room, somebody pulls up and they say, do you have a minute? And you stop in a parking lot and you begin to talk about some things that only you'd be able to do in that moment in time. 
See, those anchors in our storm is the presence of God. You know, when we follow Him, we will weep over those trapped in sin as Jesus weeps over those. You'll feel the pain that He felt. You'll see those who are spiritually blind experience the joy of coming to the Savior. You'll see people born again because you were trusting and obedient and sharing the gospel with someone that God brought into your life and you weren't timid or you weren't afraid. You just shared with them the truth of God's message to them. God loves you and yet at the same time you need forgiveness for your sinner that needs to be forgiven by a holy and righteous God. And He loves you anyway and He sought you out when He sent Jesus Christ and He sought us all out. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you would just turn from sin, acknowledge that you're a sinner as God says and that you trust in Jesus Christ as death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead the Bible says you shall be saved. That's the gospel. And, and what? And was that? Five seconds? Seven seconds? Ten seconds? How difficult is that for us to share with people? See, but we will see the joy of people coming to faith in Christ when we follow God. God, you know, show me what you want me to say. Show me what you want to do. You'll see marriages restored. Lynn and I walked into a Ruby's restaurant a couple of weeks ago and we saw a couple sitting there with two children four years ago. She was having an affair and their marriage looked like it was doomed, like there was no hope, like it was over. They had one child at the time. And the guy came to me and said, man, what am I supposed to do? He said, you keep on doing what's right before God. You don't make it easier for her to walk away from you. You keep praying. You keep on being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You continue to love her unconditionally. You do whatever God tells you to do in that relationship. And you can trust God that at the end of the day, whatever happens, that you'll have the peace and assurance that you did what was right before God. And you know what happened? God drew her back to Him because of that love. They got help. They got counsel. They were back together again. And subsequent to that, they had another child. When we walked in the room, man, the, their faith just lit up. And the reason they lit up wasn't because of us. It was because we simply were obedient to God's leading and were available to someone who was struggling in their life. We can't save a marriage. We can't save a person from hell. We can't save somebody's finances. We can't save anybody. But we can be used by God who can save anybody of anything and has demonstrated throughout human history. Be available for Him. Be open to be led and used by Him. And man, you will see what God sees. You will see a person come to faith in Christ and every angel in heaven is rejoicing at that moment and you will be there at that historical moment in time only because you are obedient to God's leading in your life and you will have God's presence. How do we become aware of His presence? Rarely through an audible voice, rarely through a vision like Paul had, rarely through the presence of the physical presence of Jesus Himself, but we always sense God's presence through this quiet uh, yearning and speaking to us of the Spirit of God who indwells us and lives within us. His presence is with us always. He's given us His down payment. If you know Christ, the Spirit of God lives within you. If you're born again, the Spirit of God lives within you and He teaches you and He, and he instructs you and He leads you and He demonstrates God's presence and He gives you peace that surpasses all understanding that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You won't hear a voice, but you'll hear the inner quiet leaning of God in your life. You'll read the Word of God and He'll demonstrate and He'll acknowledge and affirm that that's what I want you to do. What does the Word of God has to say? God speaks to us through His Word. Everybody's running around going, I want to see a vision. I want to hear something else. Hey, you know what? Jesus said this. What could God do that is greater than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is the greatest sign that God has given to humanity and we got people running all over the world about a statue or a vision or this or that or some saint or something else and it's like Jesus Christ and Him crucified is who we should focus our attention on. We don't need no middleman. We don't need to be going anyplace else. We can go to the risen Savior Himself. The Word of God tells us that Jesus on the third day rose again according to the Scriptures. He is alive today and He will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. He is either your Savior or He will be your judge. Which will He be? It's up to you. You have the freedom to choose. See, His presence is made aware of us through the, through the Word of God and the Spirit of God who indwells us. And most important, you know what? Paul used this opportunity 
to make sure those who did not know God saw the very presence of God living within Him. I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. How can you have peace in the midst of the storm? i got the presence of God living in my life. i got the presence of God. He says also His ownership. It's very personal. He says, last night an angel of, of the God whose I am. The God whose I am. He saw Himself as God's property. Do you? The world we live in sees God as their property. God, you exist for me. I tell you what to do. I tell you what I want. I tell you when I want it. I tell you how I'd like it. You're a short order cook. That's like going into a little diner. This is the God of many people in the world we live in. But God says, no, 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 no. I own you. I own you. Just like a bride and a bridegroom. The relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. The intimacy that's involved in that. The sacrificial love that's involved in life. Like a sheep to a shepherd. My, mine know me. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. We belong to Him because He's bought us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, We have been bought, purchased, with the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He owns you. If you've trusted in Him... He died for you. He shed His blood for you. He owns you. And now it's no longer, Lord, you're here to serve me. You realize that, you know what? Lord, I'm here to serve you. You've given me your best. Your very best. You suffered and died. You endured the pain. You despised the shame for the joy that was set before you. And I am here now to serve you. What do you want me to do? See, Paul had an assurance of God's presence. He had assurance of God's ownership. He knew he was on business for God. I'm on my way to Rome. God says I'm going there to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I'm getting there. I can have total peace about it. When everybody else is falling apart, I know I'm on the right path. Not the path I choose. Not the path you choose. But it doesn't matter because we always end up traveling the path He chooses. We just got to see God is more interested in the process than in the final destination. All of us would go straight to Rome. I'd look for, you know, no stops, non-stop, one flight, straight to Rome. Most comfortable seat. He says, you know what, but I'm going to take you this way. You're going to go on an Andromedian ship, then you're going to get on an Alexandrian grain barge, and then you're going to get kind of lost out in the ocean for a while, and then ultimately you'll get to Rome. And you know what? And you'll be a better man for it. You'll be better equipped to serve after he breaks you through the process. And that's all part of it. The third thing is our service. He says, the God to whom I serve. Our service. I'm here serving you. You know, several years ago, I mean, several years before this, there was another storm at sea, and the guy's name was Jonah, and you know what? He wasn't there to serve God. Totally different experience. He hated it, and the people on the boat hated him too. They threw him overboard. Now you got this boat, and everyone's going, hey, don't throw this guy over, man. I think he's our ticket to making it through this thing. What a great difference, isn't it? One guy has an attitude saying, Lord, here I am to serve you. The other guy's saying, I'm not going to serve you. And God goes, oh, yeah, watch this. Boo, you ever been inside a whale? This will be fun. Or a fish? You're going to like this little learning experience. And the last thing is, and, and we'll quit on this, is the God I trust. Are you going through your own personal storm? Hang on to the anchors of God's presence. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. If you are where He led you to go. If you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, there's no assurance there and God's presence isn't there either. I remember one time I was asking a guy who was living a lifestyle that wasn't pleasing to God. And I said, man, when you go into that place that you go in and you do the things that you do, I mean, do you realize that Jesus Christ goes with you everywhere you go? If you're really born again, a child of God, that He lives within you and He goes everywhere you go. 
I said, where is Jesus when you're in that strip joint? He said, I, I, I leave him out in the car. I said, what? You leave him out in the car? Like you crack the window and leave something for him to drink? I mean, what is wrong with you, man? I mean, he kind of made this up in his head. Like, oh, I can go and do stuff and I'll just tell you, Lord, I don't think you want to come in with me here. You just sit out here. I'll be right back. I'm going to go hang with my friend. It's like, what? It's like, you are really ignorant of the Word of God. You better spend some time studying the Word of God. The anchor of God's presence. The anchor of His ownership. Our service and our trust in Him. I love what he said. You know what? The God whom I trust. Whatever God says, goes. We can trust Him. It's beautiful. Put your faith and trust in Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You're an anchor. The presence in our life. The ownership. And as we serve You and as we trust in You... We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds of Christ Jesus. God, we just thank you for that. And we hang on with all of our life. As a person that's out on a ship hanging on for dear life, God, may we never lose grip of you. May we always hang on to you as tightly as we can because it's only as we go our own way that we get into trouble. But you say that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you're always with us. You've given us a spirit, not of timidity and fear, but one of power and might, of love and discernment and gentleness and instruction. God, help us to use the storms in our life as a witness or testimony of your goodness to those around us. And may they come to faith in the Savior through the obedience of our lives as we project Christ to a world that is hurting, that is lost and in darkness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.